Our scripture today is Luke 16, 1 through 15, and 16 through 31. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He said to the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 liters of olive oil, he said. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 30 tons of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 24. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Chapter, uh, verse 19, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to him, to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Roz, for using a version that uses metric measurements instead of imperial. 
You know, in Luke, we're in Luke 16 today, and kids, you're here, and we didn't plan this for you to be here on this particular chapter, but this is where we're landing, and it's a challenging chapter. There's two stories here, and these stories are at a Sabbath meal. It's like dinner time conversation that began in chapter 14, this meal. And Jesus has talked there about who has a seat at God's banquet table. And the last week we heard from chapter 15, where we heard about God's loving response to those who are lost. Now we're in chapter 16, still at the same meal. Jesus still is continuing to point his fingers at the difference between those who respond positively to God's kingdom and those who do not. The first story here is addressed to the disciples. The second story is addressed to the Pharisees. But all of them are in the same room, and they're listening in on this conversation. Both stories have something to say about our relationship with money and power. But they're kind of strange stories, right? What are we to do with them? One story sounds like Jesus is uh, commending dishonest business practices. The second story sounds like a description of the rich and the poor in the afterlife and how you can talk to one another when you get there. What are we to make of them? And what does Jesus have to say to us today through these stories? So we're going to walk through it three steps. Shrewdness, state, uh, stewardship, and statements. Shrewdness, stewardship, and statements. Now, for some of us, shrewdness might have negative connotations, associations. Conjures up images of Mr. Burns and from the uh, Simpsons or Mr. Scrooge from the Christmas story. These characters are shrewd, but they're also selfish and miserly. But to be shrewd is simply to be smart with what you have. Shrewd is to be smart with what you have. This first story in chapter 16 is often titled in our English Bibles as the dishonest manager or the shrewd manager, which can kind of throw us off a bit. Why is Jesus teaching us about being dishonest? Is that what he's talking about? So verse 1, he says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, mealtime, they're having a meal, turns to his disciples and says, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. This is the main character of the story. A manager who overlooks the entire operation of an owner's estate. But he hasn't been doing it well. He's been lazy or he's been cheating or something like that. And he gets called out by the owner and he's about to get fired. So he sees the writing on the wall. He's going to lose his job. So he takes action by going to all those in debt to the owner and cutting back their bills in hopes of getting on their good side. He drops the olive oil debt from 900 gallons to 450, or was it 1,500 uh, liters? And he goes and drops from 30 tons or 1,000 bushels down to 800 bushels. Now, a few things to note here. These are massive amounts of debt, indicating that this is more than just a family business. Because even your tenants are producing institutional levels of produce that the debt is that amount. That's not how much they're producing. That's how much they owe the owner. That's a lot. So this owner clearly has a lot and a lot of land. Probably more than it was actually possible if one were to actually follow Jewish laws regarding land ownership. Secondly, Jews were not allowed to lend money to other Jews and charge interest. It wasn't permitted according to Jewish law. But what how they got around it was like kind of a loophole. They would charge interest on the produce that was owed to the landlord. So keep those two possibilities in mind about this owner. He's ultra wealthy and he's charging interest on, on his, to his tenants on the produce that they have. 
So the manager does his thing. What's this owner's response? Now, you would think that, okay, this guy's already not happy with him, and that he would be even more mad for losing out on this money that he was owed. Or he'd be angry that, okay, I've, you already indicated that you're not doing your job properly, and what makes you think you can do all this in the final days of your job? But instead, the owner, what does he do? He doesn't get mad at him. He doesn't say, okay, you're fired today. He says, wow, good job. <laughs> what are we to do with that? And Jesus is teaching us, this is a parable about being like this manager. Now, the key to understanding what is, is this parable is understanding what this owner is commending. Go back to verse 14. It's up on the screen, I think. The owner commends the manager not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. Not for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness. The manager saw what he had, and what he was smart about what he had. And what did he have? Well, we, can, we know what he doesn't have. He doesn't have strength to be a laborer. We know he, doesn't have, he is too proud to go and beg from others. But what he had were these relationships with the debtors. And if he could be smart about those relationships, he could perhaps secure a new job and maybe a new home after he loses his job right now. See, that's what the owner or the manager was shrewd about, and that's what the owner commends him for. So Jesus then goes on to verse 8 and 9 to talk about, to compare the shrewdness of the people of this world with the shrewdness of the people of this light. And like this manager, people of the light, which are people who are following God, who have a place with God in the future, they can be shrewd with what they have in this life, but for the life to come. That's what Jesus is teaching through this parable. See, some of us are very good with our finances. We follow a budget. We make wise choices. We don't take on unnecessary or unhealthy amounts of debt. We are being shrewd. But in this parable, Jesus isn't just teaching us about the value of shrewdness in and of itself. He's prompting us to reflect on what, in fact, we are being shrewd for. What is it that we're being shrewd for? The manager was shrewd for his future life after he lost his job. Jesus challenges the disciples with the Pharisees listening in the room and the sinners and the tax collectors also listening in, saying, be shrewd about this life, but for the life to come. Be shrewd with your earthly resources, the things that only last for this life. That's why he says, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you have you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Be shrewd about the things that you have in this life, not to accumulate more things in this life and to enjoy this life more, but so that you can think about what that means for your future life. That's an invitation for all of us to consider. More important than how shrewd we are is what we are being shrewd for. More important than how shrewd we are is what we are being shrewd for. You know, as parents of a high school senior student, we are going through this whole college application process with our son, Evan. He applied to a few schools, and, you know, the t schools teach you apply for some safety schools, ones that you're pretty sure you can get into, and other reach schools, which are harder to get into. And he applied to a few of all these, and after getting some initial no's and wait list responses as part of the process, he received his first acceptance letter a few weeks back. Yay! He was admitted to a very prestigious school with a 9% acceptance rate. 
And so we celebrated with him. He was so happy. And then he forwarded us the financial package. <laughs> he got a $25,000 scholarship. But then we looked, even then, it would cost $55,000 a year. We are very proud of him. But we, as followers of Jesus, we knew <laughs> that taking on significant debt for our financial situation would not be a wise wise stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted to us. See, a degree from this prestigious university might be prized in this life. It may be prized especially in a town like D.C. But as Jesus followers, we're not living for this life. We're living for the life to come. So while we could, we could probably make it work. We talked about it with considerable sacrifice for a college degree uh, at a prestigious school for Evan. It's not what we're living for. Now, if you're curious, Evan will probably be attending one of the colleges he's been accepted to in Vancouver, Canada. This principle of stewardship undergirds what it means to be a worshiper of the living God. Recall earlier in the message when we mentioned the amount of land that this owner had. The land uh, promised to the Israelites was never meant to be theirs to possess and control. It was land to be inherited and it belonged to God. It comes from Leviticus chapter 25 in the chapter where um, God teaches the Israelites about the year of Jubilee. There he says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Debts were meant to be released. Land was never meant to be hold in perpetuity and passed on for generations and generations. Even if your family member couldn't hold on to the land and you were able to take care of it, it was meant to be released every seven years or every 49 years back to the original owners. There was a relationship with the land, as our Native American uh, friends inform us. We have a relationship with Creator. We have a relationship with creation and also with the people around us. The land belongs to God. And the people of Israel were meant to be tenants caring for the land even when they were to take control of the land from a family member who couldn't work on it anymore. This is the idea of stewardship that carries forward and should cause us to raise an eyebrow at how this owner came to have so much land and wealth. It might suggest why he actually commends the manager because, oh, okay, you, you, know, what, you know how to get around in this world. Stewardship shows up earlier in verse 9. We already mentioned it. But in verse 12, 11 and 12, again, when Jesus talks about how someone can be trustworthy in handling someone else's property and worldly wealth will be rewarded more. You see, to be a steward is to manage someone else's property. You don't own it. You manage someone else's affairs. It's a recognition that all that you have does not belong to you. It belongs to God. Our money Our time, our power, our influence, our material resources, our relationships, all of these are merely gifts to us. And even though we may work for a paycheck, we might study hard for a a degree, we might invest wisely into our uh, portfolios or into a business, we might work hard and raise children, we might renovate our homes and build beautiful gardens. All of these are things that we do, but... Jesus' followers recognize that all of these are simply gifts to us from God. None of them are for us to do with as we please. 
We are merely stewards caring for it during our time here on earth. This present life, this parable can be applied to how we handle money, of course, and how we steward things as individuals. But this parable is really a challenge to Israel's stewardship of what God had entrusted to them. Israel was supposed to be God's property manager, in a sense, but not just of the physical land and housing. They were to be a, a, prop, a manager of how humans are to live in relationship with the living God. They were meant to be an example of that. Say, here is what I've given to you. Here is how you are meant to live in relationship with me. But you're missing the point. Israel was failing at this task. And their future in God's kingdom was now at risk. What has been the response so far? The Pharisees are kind of leading the charge here. They're responding by saying, let's dig into the law, the regulations of the law. Let's dig deeper in an attempt to make Israel more attractive. Let's be more holy so that we can be a blessing by strictly following the law. But as they were doing that, they were excluding the very people that Jesus was trying to welcome into God's kingdom. That's what Jesus challenges two, chapter, two chapters ago in 14 about this banquet. Who's at the banqueting table? And that's why he challenges uh, them in the previous chapter, chapter 15, about the elder brother in the story of the parable of, uh, of the prodigal son. If you've been following Luke throughout the series, you might notice that Jesus is always pointing out how the kingdom of God is for the downs and outs as well as those who are in and up. These terms, uh, see, out of all of the Gospels, Luke makes the most references to how the kingdom of God is for the poor and for the tax collectors and for the sinners. If you do a word search, you'll see that those words show up way more in the Gospel of Luke than other Gospels. Now, Luke isn't saying that God's kingdom and that God is only for those, these groups of people more than others. But Luke uses these terms to name those whom the insiders, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, would consider as outsiders to God's kingdom. And the way that these insiders were treating those on the outside betrays how may, they actually might find themselves outside of God's kingdom one day. The Pharisees were being unfaithful stewards of what God had given to them. And as a result, their place in the life to come was now at risk. How does the, this idea of stewardship confront what you believe you're entitled to? You know, stewardship isn't just about money. It's about every part of our lives. And when God challenges me, it's not just about my money and my possessions, although it's often about that. But it's also about my sense of worth, about my sense of identity, and even my sense of who I think God is and how God, I think God should work. See, when God challenges me, I often find myself saying, hey, no, God, you can't have that. That's mine. I work for it. I deserve this. And you know what it would do to me if I had this taken away from me? You don't get it. I, and in fact, I'm not sure if I believe this is the kind of God would do this to me. You ever find yourself saying things like that? Because that's not stewardship. That's possession. Entitlement. Stewardship instead says, hmm, God, that's kind of a hard ask. But I want to have open hands with this. 
I recognize that this really isn't mine to hold on to and to control. Help me to trust you. Help me to trust that you're good, as we were singing earlier today. Help me to obey what your word asks of me. Spirit of God, show what's going on inside of my heart and guide me and bring wise people into my life that speak into this. That's what stewardship says. You know, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus challenges his followers to be shrewd and to be stewards of the right thing. See, it's not just about being shrewd and being a good steward. It's about what our shrewdness and what our stewardship says about what's important to us. You see, stewardship makes a statement. Our stewardship says something. You know, at the conclusion of Jesus' commentary on the first parable, we find the Pharisees' displeasure with him is now expressed publicly. Remember how earlier in the meal, in chapter 14, what is their response to Jesus healing the man? Silence. Chapter 15, verse, beginning of the chapter, they notice that Jesus welcomes tax collectors and sinners to sit around him near the table. And what is their response to that? Grumbling. <laughs> Why would he do something like that? We get to verse 16. Now he's really getting on their nerves. And he's responding, they're responding publicly at Jesus by sneering at him. From silence to grumbling to sneering. I don't know how you sneer, but it's probably pretty visible. So now Jesus turns his attention from his disciples that he told the first story to. Now he's telling the second story to the Pharisees. Again at this meal. And in verse 15, that's where he begins it. After some initial comments, he launches into the second parable in verse 19. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This is full of contrasts here, if you read it. There's a rich man and there's a guest guy named Lazarus. The rich man is unnamed. We don't know his name, but Lazarus is named. The rich man has purple robes, which in the ancient times was incredibly expensive. Purple was an expensive color. But there's this Lazarus who is unclothed. How do we know he's unclothed? Because you can see the sores on his body. The rich man lives in this compound. We know it's a huge compound because it has a gate that people recognize to enter in. And the homeless, the, the Lazarus is probably homeless, and he spends every day at the gate of this rich man. The rich man feasts every day. This is like, like big feasts, all-you-can-eat barbecue every day. Lazarus, what does he do? He's just waiting at the side of the table to eat the scraps that fall off. The rich man is buried. He has a proper burial. Lazarus is, is not. The rich man had good things in this life. Lazarus did not. And then, when in the life to come, there's a reversal. The rich man finds himself in Hades, apart from God, in torment. Lazarus finds himself at Abraham's side, in God's presence, in comfort. Like the first parable, this Though this parable talks about the rich and the poor, it would be a mistake to read this parable as a statement of how the rich are going to be apart from God and the poor are going to be close to God. This parable actually reveals what we do with our money makes a statement about what's important to us in this life and in the life to come. Our shrewdness and our stewardship in this life say something. They make a statement. Luke tells us in verse 14 that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Their treatment of the people that Jesus was welcoming into God's kingdom 
reflected the same attitude that this rich, uh, rich man had towards Lazarus. He didn't care about him, even though he had so much. The Pharisees' lack of concern and disdain for the poor, the sinners, and the tax collectors, that made a statement about what they really believed, what was important to them. Through this parable, Jesus points out that they were stewarding, they were stewarding something, they were stewarding their prestige, they were stewarding their power and respect in the community, but for the wrong end goal. Their relationship with money and said a statement about that the things in this life were more important than the things in the life to come. You know, just as the steward was commended for taking action to prevent total disaster in his next move, so the Pharisees are urged to change their ways while there's still time. That's why at the end of this parable, he's, you know, the, the rich man says, tell, tell my friends, my, my relatives, my brothers to hear this message so they don't end up where I'm at. And Jesus, what is, he says, they already have everything that they need to know. They just have to follow it. Jesus' warning to the Pharisees is a warning to us. Throughout Jesus' ministry, and especially in these parables, Jesus is confronting what our stewardship says is important to us. Jesus challenges his followers to give towards those who cannot repay you. Put your resources, and not to secure better standing in this world and accumulate more wealth, but for true riches in the life to come. What does that mean? It means giving to those who can't repay you. They can't repay you with money or honor and recognition or future goodwill. They can't give you with, back with, uh, with investments that will return. See, when we do things like that, as follow, and we're following Jesus and are trusting God, it will never be a waste in this life. When someone is in need, we might be tempted to be shrewd with our money and say, well, I've got to be good stewards. I want to make sure that what God entrusted to me doesn't go to waste. How do I know that it's not, it's going to a good cause? How do I know this is really going to help the situation? How many of you have asked those questions? I know I have. But in light of what Jesus says here, you're not responsible for it. God is. You're not responsible for what happens after it leaves your hands. God is. And our responsibility is to bring people to the table of God's kingdom. Our responsibility is to help them see God's beauty and love and compassion and reality as best as we can with what God has given to us. But full acknowledgement, this is really hard. Even when we try our best, even when we have the right intentions, our selfishness is always creeping in using God's steward stewardship and shrewdness as uh, an excuse. We need God's help, and we especially need the help of wise people around us to help point out our blind sides. Last weekend, I had lunch with someone in a neighborhood restaurant here, and we were in the middle of a great conversation. So when the bill came and the credit card, I had the credit card, I got the credit card slip and I checked the 20% tip on the bill and signed it off. But when I got home, I realized that on the restaurant receipt, they already added 20% gratuity to the, uh, to the thing. And then I had signed the extra 20% on the credit card bill and I felt so mad. Now I'm sure none of you ever experienced that. And you never had a conversation with people at the table about pandemic adjustment fees and service fees at restaurants and what that should do to the tip that you leave. But 
And then there's the, the shrewd steward, Andrew, rose out and says, this is so unfair. The restaurant should make it clear. This is, I'm wasting this money that God gave to me. And came up with all these ob- objections. A few days later, we were biking by the same restaurant, and I, I was biking with Julia, and I turned to her and thought out loud, I was like, hmm, I wonder, maybe I should stop by and just go in and ask for an adjustment on the bill because they double-charged me this tip. She, she immediately responds, like, how much was it? $7.20. You're going to go back for $7? This is a black-owned uh, business that you wanted to support, and their workers there probably need it. Haven't you, already, haven't you been preaching about generosity? Aren't we grateful for godly and wise spouses and partners? So when Jesus arrived on the scene and he introduced the kingdom of God to his contemporaries, he brought in a totally new way of relating to God. He also introduced a new way of relating to our possessions and those around us. A life lived in relationship with the God of love changes how we view, how we use our resources. Sure, we could use our savings to maximize investments for ourselves. Sure, we could use our education and our work experience and our mobility to take better paying jobs and opportunities. But what if we viewed our money and our resources as ways to give to those who cannot repay you rather than to accumulate for yourself? And that may mean you might divert some of your funds towards giving to the people and supporting people, investing in people who can't pay you back. And that's not a waste. That may mean that you don't take a job promotion because it would require more hours at the office or require a move to a new community rather than staying in the community you're in with the relationships that you've built up. Serving in church, serving your neighbors, serving your family. More important than being shrewd and being good stewards of our resources is what we are being good stewards for. What does our stewardship say about what's important to us? Does our stewardship and does our shrewdness speak of God's recognition and character? Does it speak of building God's kingdom or does it speak of our recognition and building our kingdom? You know, Jesus invites us to follow in his footsteps. What were his footsteps? Downward mobility to the cross. Living a life of sacrifice for God and for the life to come. Jesus invites us to live for this future life, but in this present life, using all that we have, our resources, our, pro- our opportunities, and our skills wisely, not for our glory, but for the glory of God. Jesus calls us to walk in grace, which is exactly what he offers to every one of us as sinners, broken, separated from God. What's grace? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's exactly what we've experienced from the God of love. And so how will you respond to Jesus' invitation of shrewdness and stewardship? May your stewardship, may your shrewdness say something about the grace of God in Christ. Amen.